This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 19, so let me invite you to turn to Luke 19, and while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. About another time I was lost, this time in a much more uh, scary situation. I was assigned uh, by the Navy to go overseas to the little island nation of Bahrain in the Middle East, and I uh, called a taxi, uh, used my app on my phone, which I could only use from the hotel when I had access to Wi-Fi, and I wanted to go to a local shopping center and see what was in the town, and the taxi driver dropped me off in a very nondescript place in Bahrain, and he insisted that that's what I asked for, and he had other jobs to get to, and so here I was in the middle of a city of a million-plus people, uh, nearing uh, sundown, having no idea where I was, unable to use my phone to get back to where I was, had come from, not knowing the local language, and not knowing the local customs. What was I to do? What would you do in a situation being lost like this? Well, I didn't know which way was north or south, so I just wandered and wandered there in Bahrain in June in the heat, and finally I saw a familiar sight, a Chili's. And I got a cheeseburger because I knew that I was close to the U.S. Naval Base. <laughs> well, as I said, what would you do in a circumstance like mine? If you know what it's like to be lost, you know that people respond to being lost in different ways. Sometimes we stubbornly refuse to admit that we are lost, like a man who refuses to stop and ask for directions. Sometimes we wander as I did until you find a familiar place or a familiar face. Sometimes we despair like a child who has lost her mother in a busy marketplace. We break down in tears. These are all natural and common responses to lostness, which I suggest to you simply to prompt you to think about lostness as we consider lost persons in the Gospel of Luke. For Luke presents to us many lost people in this gospel. We have seen scribes and Pharisees who are like that man who refused to acknowledge they were lost and headed in the wrong direction. So they persisted in their chosen path to their own destruction. We have seen the disciples and others who traveled with Jesus but were confused by the path he traveled. Like the passenger in a car who insists that the driver has made a wrong turn though he doesn't really know the way. We finally have seen men and women who knew what they were seeking better. They knew who they were seeking, but they could not reach him because they faced insurmountable obstacles in their life, obstacles that were outside their control. And in every case, Jesus met these lost persons and he called them to follow him as he led them in the right direction. He's the only one in the Gospel of Luke who we never find to be lost. He always knew what he had to be doing. He always knew where he had to be. He always knew where he had to go to accomplish that which he was sent to do. And a central part of that, that mission, the mission of saving lost sinners, is one that we easily overlook. For as Jesus will declare in the text before us, He did not only come to save us with impersonal acts, He came to seek us and to save us. And that's the message that we'll find in the text this morning as we look to Luke 19. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me in Luke 19, verse 1, as I read to verse 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, 
He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, Father in heaven, you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But you also sent your Son graciously to seek us. And he seeks us still through the preaching of your word, through the Spirit whom he sends to be with us, to ignite our hearts so that we might receive the word, your word, with all faith. And so I pray, O Lord, that you would send your spirit now, that you would come and seek us out and save those who are in need of salvation and restore those who have been wandering, as we are all prone to do. Work through us through your word, Lord, to to restore us to fellowship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke has an interesting way of showing the lostness of people who encountered Jesus during his ministry. He often portrays them as earnestly seeking Jesus, only to be frustrated in their search by the obstacles they faced. I could give you an example if you turn back with me in Luke's gospel to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verses 41 through 50. I'll simply remind you of most of the context before I read a few of these verses, but here We often describe this passage as a passage where Jesus is lost in Jerusalem, but that's not really what has happened. Jesus isn't the one who's lost. It's his parents who Luke shows to be lost. They go to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover when Jesus is 12 years old, and they leave him there in the temple, and they go a day's journey not realizing that he's not there with their traveling caravan, and so they finally begin to search. And we pick it up in verse 44 of Luke chapter 2. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, if any one of us were to describe that event, I don't think we would use the language of of lostness the way that Luke does to portray Mary and Joseph as though they were lost. They had lost sight of their child, but they weren't lost per se, and they found him eventually, and yet that's exactly what Luke does, because 
even though they're maybe not precisely lost in that literal sense, there's an abstract way in which they are lost. They're lost in their quest for Jesus. They don't know where he is, and so they're searching for him, but they're not finding him. And Luke does this quite a few times in his gospel to portray people as lost in some greater way, in in a more abstract way, you might say, so that even when they do finally find him, they're bewildered. They're at a loss for words. They don't understand what they're seeing and what they're hearing, but Jesus knows. He knows where he needs to be, where he must be, He knows what he must be doing at that moment, even at that early age, at the age of 12. And you can turn forward to Luke chapter 5, and we see a very similar way in which Luke describes people who are seeking Jesus, but they're not finding a way to him. There, again, I'll remind you the context. Here we find a man who's paralyzed, and he's on a stretcher, and his friends are carrying him to try and get him before Jesus, but there's a great crowd, and they cannot penetrate that crowd. So in verse 18, we pick it up and we read, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And there Jesus will see that they demonstrated faith by their perseverance. But before we see that, Luke does portray them in a sense as lost, and in a sense, as unable to overcome some obstacles, even if they do ultimately overcome it. Ultimately, then, what we see is that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to reach out to them. They they wanted an audience with him. Presumably, they wanted healing. But Jesus takes a further step to forgive this man's sins, seeing his faith, and then to prove that he has authority to do such a thing, raises him from the grave. It's just a little literary technique that Luke does to portray people as lost, to make us to see that in some sense, in some way, they are like lost people who Jesus is coming to find. And there are other examples that I might direct your attention to, but I will leave that for another time for the sake of time. But I think it's important to observe this way in which Luke describes various individuals because this is, in a sense, the gospel of the one who came to seek and save the lost. That's a primary way in which Luke would portray Jesus. And it's true that he wants us also to be seeking him. We see people who will seek Jesus, ironically, not for the right reasons. And Jesus will rebuke those individuals. They're seeking a sign from him and they're not finding it. Or like the scribes and the Pharisees, And Judas, they're seeking an opportunity to arrest or to betray him. But for those who would really genuinely seek Jesus by faith, we are encouraged. He says this in Luke 11, verses 9 through 10. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Not seek and you won't find. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to him it will be opened. And he says this in the context of prayer, encouraging us to seek good things from our Heavenly Father in prayer. Praying in Christ's name and trusting that God will give us the good gifts that He has promised. Not the things that we might think are good, but the good things that God knows which are best for us. Namely, in that context, Luke says, He knows how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we're encouraged to be people who seek good things from our Father, And in that broader sense, we're encouraged to be people who seek good things through Christ, to seek 
Him by faith and repentance with the assurance that if we seek Him, we truly seek Him, we will find Him. But that doesn't really depend upon our ability in the search because we are lost sinners. Luke's not portraying this as a matter of it's, it, it not being that hard, and so if you just engage in the search, you will surely find it's not that hard to do. But rather, the basis for that assurance, the reason why Jesus can say to us, if we seek, we will find, is because He also is engaged in a search. He came for this purpose. The Son of Man, He says, came to seek and to save the lost. That's the way He's portrayed in the text before us. And we need to understand this aspect of the gospel proclamation. Sometimes we can make it very impersonal. What did Jesus come to do? And He's said this many times as he's predicted what will take place in Jerusalem. The Son of Man must be delivered over by the religious leaders, by this generation. He must suffer many things. He must be scourged. He must be spit upon. He must be put to death. He must be buried. And on the third day, he must rise. Jesus said that plainly on multiple occasions, and yet Alone, that can be very impersonal. It leaves us with the impression that Jesus came to do His part, and then when He finished it, He says, Now I've done my part. Now the ball is in your court, and you must do your part. You come and seek me, and I'll just sit here and wait. That's not at all the picture that Luke presents. He presents one who didn't just come to save us, but He came to seek and to save us, because we are lost and we can't, see, we can't find on our own. We may be people who are lost and wandering and seeking, what we need to be saved. But unless He comes and searches us out, we will not find Him, for we will not be found. But we are assured that He will find us out. It's not a question of whether we both hold up an end of the bargain, if you will. We're sure that if we seek Him by faith, He surely will seek us. And He gives us such an example of that as we look at this narrative concerning Zacchaeus. Here then, we come back to Luke 19. And we consider this man and what we learn from him as we see this personal way in which Jesus comes to seek and save a lost sinner. The, message in the, the, the passage at hand, it's going to break down into two scenes. One scene is going to take place in the streets of Jericho, and the other scene will take place in Zacchaeus' house. <coughs> Excuse me. Luke doesn't draw a whole lot of attention to this change, but we can detect that shift. The first scene then unfolds in verses 1 through 6, and the next scene unfolds in verse 7 through 10. And in both scenes, what we see is that first, Zacchaeus takes an action, and then Jesus, in a sense, seizes the initiative and makes a pronouncement, makes a declaration. And that's what's ultimate in this text. From the start, as we look at the text, it seems that Jesus is just passing through. Look at what Luke says. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And it makes sense. We have seen repeatedly in Luke's gospel that Jesus has his attention fixed upon Jerusalem. That is his destination. From the moment in Luke 9.51 when he set his face to Jerusalem, Luke has repeatedly reminded us of this fact that that is where Jesus is going. And so we look at Jericho and we think, well, this is just a natural point where he's got to pass through in order to get there some 15 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, uh, an ascent of 4,000 feet, roughly speaking, up to Jerusalem from Jericho. It was the natural stopping place before that ascent, which would take 
a healthy man, something like nine hours to traverse. Right? So it's a natural stopping place, perhaps for the night, before Jesus brings that, takes that next leg of his journey up to Jerusalem. And so we see that he's passing through. And yet as the narrative unfolds, he's doing more than passing through. We realize that he's coming to Jericho for a definitive reason, according to a divine purpose, not merely by happenstance. Well, Zacchaeus probably looked at this and thought, this is a stroke of good luck for me. We can see from the way Luke describes him that he was seeking to see Jesus. And the way that Luke uh, describes him, it's hard to pick this up in English, but it's this continual seeking as if he'd been searching or looking to see Jesus for some time. He'd been wanting to, and so then we can presume that he had failed to obtain that objective. But now Jesus has come to his town. What luck! And yet Zacchaeus has a problem as he seeks for Jesus. Zacchaeus is short. He's a man of small stature, and the crowd is big, and he can't see over them. He's seeking, but even now he's frustrated in that search. But undeterred, Zacchaeus makes a plan. He develops a strategy. Here before him is a sycamore tree, and the sycamore trees of that region would have large branches that branch out horizontally, easy for climbing, and the leaves would be broad, and so it would be easy to climb up into one and sit over a road or a, a walkway and be concealed relatively from people. You could easily be missed in that tree, especially a man of such small stature. And so he runs on ahead. He spies a place where he sees that Jesus is going to pass by there, and he runs on that way. He just wants to see this man about whom... Presumably, he's heard so much. Amazingly, Jesus comes to the place, and he stops, and he looks up, and he says to the man by name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house, at your house today. It's an astounding thing that he says to Zacchaeus. I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus probably is thinking, how do you know me? Of course, Jesus is famous by this time, all that he's done. Zacchaeus knows who Jesus is, but how does he know me by name? But Jesus is revealing that he actually has a divine appointment to seek out this particular man. That word there, when he says, for I must stay at your house today, that word must is easy to overlook, but we must not do that. Because it's a very important word in Luke's gospel. It's a key word by which Luke draws our attention to those things which figure into God's divine plan, His purpose for Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. Whenever Jesus uses this language, in almost every case, it unambiguously refers to something that He must do to fulfill His mission as the Son of Man. Twelve times in this particular form, He uses this term, sometimes translated as something I must do or something that is necessary to be done. And in eight of those instances, it's unambiguous. He's speaking about something that he must do as the Son of Man to fulfill what Scripture spoke concerning the Christ. And so, for instance, in his first prediction of his death, in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must, there's our word, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
He says something very similar again in Luke 17.25. But first, the Son of Man must be rejected by this generation. Again in Luke 22.37. And again after His resurrection, twice in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 21, verse 9, he says that wars and tumults, wars and conflicts, must first take place before the Son of Man comes. These are things that must take place in fulfillment of Scripture in accordance with the mission given to Jesus as the Son of Man about whom Daniel spoke. And this suggests that those four other instances in which Luke uses this language may also indicate, in a subtle way, Another aspect of his mission. I suggest to you that this instance does. It highlights something that Jesus must do because he is the Son of Man. He must stay in Zacchaeus' house. And we're going to see then, in a parallel statement in the second half of the passage, why it's necessary that he must stay in Zacchaeus' house. But let's just pause for the moment and consider how astounding, again, this picture is. I don't think that's what Zacchaeus was expecting. He was just looking to see Jesus. He did find what he was seeking, but Jesus came and found him and gave him so much more. And so observe what he did as Jesus commanded him, saying, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house today. And then in verse 6, he does precisely what Jesus says with urgency. He hurries, he comes down, and he receives him joyfully. Jesus found this lost sinner, and brought him home like a good shepherd, finding his lost sheep and bringing it back into the fold. But this is not just about Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't have a divine appointment appointment only with this man, but also with those who are looking on, because those who witnessed this turn of events were not pleased with what they saw. They had just seen Jesus give sight to a blind man on the approach up to to Jericho, And they didn't like the blind man calling out and being so loud and saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. But when Jesus did restore his sight, they rejoiced with him. They glorified God because of what Jesus had done. They were glad to see Jesus show mercy to this poor beggar. But this man, Zacchaeus, is a tax collector, a chief tax collector at that. He's a really good tax collector, which means he's a really bad man. It means he's taken advantage of a lot of people. It means he's sided with the Romans, selling out his people, abandoning his heritage to make a buck. That's the kind of man Zacchaeus has been. And so they regard him as a sinner. And this man now, speaking of Jesus, has gone in. He's going to enjoy table fellowship with this man who is a sinner. That statement suggests they don't think the same thing about themselves. Oh, sure, we sin, but... We wouldn't classify ourselves as sinners. This man, though, doesn't deserve this kind of honor in their eyes. Now Luke tells us nothing about the identity of these grumblers, except that they grumbled, and so we will simply call them that, these grumblers. Presumably they are from the crowd. Perhaps they include some of Jesus' own disciples, even some among the twelve. Maybe they were some of the same individuals who Luke described in Luke 15, verse 1. There we read... Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them, like the Israelites in the wilderness who grumbled when God fed them with manna in the wilderness. These Pharisees and the scribes grumbled when Jesus welcomed sinners and tax collectors, and now 
the onlookers in Jericho grumble because Jesus goes in to the home of a chief tax collector. If any had been present in that earlier moment and heard the parables that followed, the parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, they certainly did not receive the clear message of those parables because they were not rejoicing in what was happening for this lost man who was being restored to fellowship with his maker. For Luke records them uttering this very same complaint. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. In short, these grumblers were also lost sinners who needed to learn from the example of this man Zacchaeus. Jesus came to Jericho for their sake too, so he held Zacchaeus forth as an example to these grumblers so that they might understand the full scope of his saving mission and so that they might see what saving faith really looks like so that they might follow the example of this lost sinner who had come home. Now, did Zacchaeus hear their complaint? We can't know for sure if he's responding to what they had just said or if he just knows how they feel about him. You see, it wouldn't have been a thing where they just sort of thought he was a kind of annoying guy. He can come to the parties, but he stands in the corner, and no one really talks to him except in polite pleasantries. He wasn't invited to the party, and he knew it. He can't come. We don't want to be around you. That's the way he would have been treated, and he would have been okay with that. He made his bargain. He sold them out for the wealth he could get as a chief tax collector. But something about Jesus had made him start to change. We see that then flow forth in the way that he is described. You see, as he responds, if you will, to their allegations, he's not seeking, he's not concerned to win back the people in their good graces, but rather he's concerned with the one whom he calls Lord. That's not why he said what he says. He was concerned to follow Jesus. And here we need to recognize that the gospel writers did not write like modern novelists or modern historians who might fill pages with paragraphs about the inner psychology of their subjects. They didn't have the time or the parchment for that. So they just wrote very simple, very quick sentences that showed the person for who he really was. And Luke uses simple words and phrases to show that Zacchaeus is a man who demonstrates true repentance and true faith. How does he do that? Well, look at the text with me. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And what we hear as we hear those words are echoes of things that we've read in Luke already. When we go back to Luke 3, verse 14, we see John the Baptist preaching to crowds in the wilderness and tax collectors and soldiers coming to him. And he's, the soldiers and tax collectors, he tells them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, show your repentance with your actions. And so they say, what do we do? And to the soldiers, he tells them not to extort people by way of false accusations. That word, false accusations, translated there as false accusations, is the same word that Zacchaeus uses here when he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything. And it's a word that we find nowhere else in the New Testament, not again in Luke, suggesting that Luke would have us reflect on that earlier passage, but it does echo words that we hear in the Greek translation of several Old Testament texts, mainly 
Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, there's our language, you shall not lie to one another. In other words, what Zacchaeus is acknowledging is that he is guilty of violating the law of God if I have defrauded anyone, but he is resolved to make restitution for that, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's a truly repentant man, and he's going to even go beyond that. Here we echo another text. We think back to Luke 18 and the rich ruler. Rich ruler who Jesus said, sell all your possessions and give to the poor who was not willing to part with a penny. But here we see Zacchaeus who, without even being asked or told, unprompted says, half of my goods, half of my net worth, I distribute to the poor. And that's before I start to make fourfold restitution for all the wrongs that I've committed. This is a man who demonstrates true repentance. He demonstrates true faith because he demonstrates, unlike the rich ruler, that his chief value is in knowing Christ and being known by Christ. Consider with me for a moment that comparison. Look back to Luke 18, verse 18. We read there, and a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Luke uses similar language and phrases to describe these men so that we can see that they bear some things in common, and yet, in the more important things, they are mere images of one another. They are both rich, and in a sense, they are both Rulers, we could say here is a ruler, and we could say of Zacchaeus, he's a ruling tax collector. But they did not respond to Jesus in the same way. The rich ruler addressed Jesus as good teacher, which we might say, hey, that's a, quite an honor if you said to me, good teacher afterward, I'd say, oh, like, that's, that's a lot to say, you know, that, just call me Will. But when we see that in comparison to what Zacchaeus says, we see it's not an honor at all good teacher, but Zacchaeus addresses him as Lord. Nor are these mere words. Zacchaeus demonstrated that he really regarded Jesus as Lord because he obeyed when Jesus commanded and with joy and urgency. But the rich ruler went away sorrowful, would not do what Jesus commanded, even though he promised him heavenly treasure, treasure that would last forever. Zacchaeus acknowledged his own sinfulness through repentance. The rich ruler claimed his own righteousness with pride. The rich ruler treasured earthly wealth more than heavenly treasure, so he would not part with even a penny for the poor. Zacchaeus treasured Christ, so he freely gave half his worth to the poor, and he promised whatever was necessary beyond this in restitution to all he had wronged. Why does Luke create this contrast between the rich ruler and between Zacchaeus? If we recall all that Luke has said to this point, we might draw some wrong conclusions. And this is why Zacchaeus is so important in Luke's narrative. We remember things like the parable of the sower, where we had thorny soil, and the thorns in the soil represented what? 
the cares and riches of this life, those things which stifle faith so that people aren't fruitful. In contrast, we heard at the outset of the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then he'll say, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Nevertheless, we're not to understand these as categorical rejections of those who are rich, nor as a categorical acceptance of those who are poor. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven simply because you're poor in financial terms. You don't get excluded from the kingdom of heaven simply because you have a bank account that's above zero. That's not what Luke is saying. That's not what Jesus was saying. He did not condemn the rich as beyond the saving power of Christ. Rather, he warned against the danger of riches and their ability to stifle genuine faith. Here, Zacchaeus serves as a powerful example to us, showing us that no one, even a rich man like Zacchaeus, and one who gained his wealth in ill-gotten ways by mistreating others and taking advantage of that, even he was not beyond Jesus' saving search even those who are rich in this age are not beyond His seeking and saving power. The rich ruler may have rejected Jesus' invitation for the sake of his riches, but this ruling tax collector abandoned his wealth to receive his Lord. So salvation came to his house that day. So Jesus put him forward to these grumblers as an example of genuine faith so they might see that salvation is assured, even for tax collectors who believe in this way. He calls him a son of Abraham, not simply because of his heritage, but because he demonstrates that he is a son of Abraham by his faith, and so that they will be prompted to think in a new way with a new perspective about this man. The only other time that Jesus identifies someone as related to Abraham in this way is in Luke 13. In a similar context where a ruler in a synagogue objects because Jesus heals a woman who's disabled on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to that hypocrite, Ought not this woman, must not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The same is true of Zacchaeus. Must not this lost sinner be brought back to his Lord through repentance and faith. For he too is a son of Abraham. In other words, words, in both cases, self-righteousness blinded people from seeing and rejoicing in the saving work of the Lord. So, true to his mission, Jesus called them to repent of their grumbling and self-righteousness by calling attention to genuine faith and repentance and by challenging the grumblers to adopt a new perspective. For Jesus is the Son of Man. And He came not only to save, He came to seek and to save all who are lost. Now, Jesus is the Son of Man. And He came for this purpose, to seek and to save lost sinners like us. It does not matter if we're lost in the grip of sinful disobedience like Zacchaeus, or if we are lost in the sin of sinful self-righteousness like the rich ruler. In either case, we are lost. And the, the only solution to our problem 
is to seek Jesus through repentance and faith and to be found by Him. If we seek Him, we are assured that He will find us. So we will find Him. For though we don't have it within ourselves to overcome the obstacles that are between us and God, He will not fail in the mission for which He was sent. He came to seek all who are His and He will do all that He came to do. Now if you're here today and you've not believed in Christ, if you're unsure about this whole Christian testimony, this should come to you as a clear and unmistakable call to believe in Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is your maker. Yet He became like you, becoming a man, so that He might seek you and save you. He did this by suffering cruel shame in your place, by dying on a cross in your place, and by rising from the dead to assure that you will have eternal life in a resurrection at His coming. But He's also seeking you personally by calling you to faith. How? As you hear His word right now, you are hearing the words of Christ and He is calling you personally to faith. True, He does not stand before you in visible form. I am not Him. But these words you have heard from this text, these are His words, and they're words for you. For your sake, these are written. He said of Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, because Zacchaeus did not harden his heart in unbelief, but he responded with repentance and faith. And to us also he speaks with similar words through the author of, the Hebrew, of Hebrews in Hebrews 3, 13-15, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So, as I am commanded, I exhort you today, is the day of salvation. Only repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus and what He's accomplished for you. Today is the day. If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart like that rich ruler, like so many others who rejected Him in that day. Like Zacchaeus, consider where you have fallen short of God's righteous commandments. You've heard them. You have heard the commandments He said to the rich ruler. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And if you've kept all these from your youth, if you can truly say that, I'd like to meet you afterward. I haven't. None of us has. Consider where you've fallen short of God's righteous commandments. Acknowledge your guilt. Turn from these sins Pray to Christ for His mercy and you will be found by Him. He will not leave you to wander. Then His words to Zacchaeus will be His words to you. Today salvation will come to you. For Christ will come and make His home with you as He promised in John chapter 14, 23. If anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. and We will come to Him and make our home with Him. We keep Jesus' words when we repent of our sins and we believe the gospel and we believe in Him. So if you have not yet believed, I urge you, do so now in your heart, 
before God, and I assure you, you will be saved. If you have more questions about that, please, I'd love to talk more with you afterward. But this is not only a word for those who are lost in unbelief. There is a word here for all of us who are, as we sing in the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If we are in Christ, we are sheep in His flock, but like sheep, we tend to wander. Then as we wander, we come to our senses and we realize we are lost. We do not know how to find our way home. How does this text encourage us? How can we apply it to our lives? Let me answer this question in two steps. First, I want to consider some common ways that we lose our way. And second, I want to consider the means that God has appointed for the restoration of believers. There are many ways to get lost, but they all bear certain things in common. We get lost when we look away from Christ, our shepherd, and turn our attention to ourselves, either in self-righteousness, trusting in our own goodness, or in unrighteousness, seeking to satisfy all of our lusts. Either way, we stop trusting in Christ for our salvation and forgiveness, and we trust in our own good works, or we stop trusting in Christ to sanctify us by His Word and through the Spirit, and we start trying to grow in holiness through our own strength alone, or we just give up altogether on that and don't pursue it at all. And so we lose sight of Christ because we're so fixated on ourselves as we embrace the deceits of sin in this life. In either case, we've lost our way. And often both realities are true simultaneously. They become evident through a kind of despair. Joey Tomlinson, a pastor in Virginia, recently wrote an article titled Men and Despair, which I found very helpful. It's not just about men. It can be applied to any person. But he made some following observations about Christians who struggle with this kind of lostness. Despairing people often have a strong sense of injustice in the world, not unlike those who grumbled when Jesus enjoyed table fellowship with Zacchaeus. And they despair over such injustices but they also feel incapable of controlling their sinful appetites, and so they descend into a greater despair over their own inability to do what God has commanded. But rather than reckoning with the injustice that they've committed in their sin against God, they become bitter, reactive. They isolate themselves from other believers. They despair of God's appointed means of grace, His Word, prayer, fellowship in the church, And they blame their failures on circumstances, or worse, on God Himself. I'm sure that I have been like this at many points in my life. I know it. And I'm sure that many might feel lost in the same way as well, lost in despair. In short, someone or something has displaced Christ as the object of our faith and the source of our joy, and we have realized that this person or thing is not trustworthy and not satisfying but it has taken hold of us. We feel incapable of escaping its grip. We may stubbornly persist in our way like that lost man who refuses to admit he is lost. We may break down in despair like the crying child who has lost her mother. We may wander in confused and unsure where to go, but what we need, what we hope for, is a deliverer, someone to come and seek us and find us and lead us from this despair. In this 
Jesus' words at the end of this passage are a great assurance to us. For he came precisely for this mission. And just because he has ascended to heaven does not mean he has ceased from this mission. For he is the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. But we must consider how, at the present, he accomplishes this mission. In some ways, Zacchaeus' experience is like ours, but in other ways, it is unique. Jesus is not going to walk through those doors physically. He is with us. But physically, we are his hands and his feet. And if we want to know how to escape our lostness, then we need to learn not to neglect nor to despise the ordinary means of grace. God's word, prayer, and fellowship, and particularly the way in which they are personally applied. And this is key. And what I want to focus on today. It's not just a matter of reading the Bible in the morning and saying a prayer and saying I've taken my magic pill and it should cure me from all my sins. Sometimes people present it that way and it causes us to doubt whether these things actually work. The means of grace that God has appointed are more like regular exercise, more like daily nutrition that we need to take in order to maintain ourselves in the will of God, but they also need to be applied through personal fellowship with one another. We are the hands and feet of Christ who God has appointed to represent Him, to bring people back to Christ through patient and gentle and faithful discipleship of one another. Make no mistake, it's still Jesus who seeks and finds us. We're merely His hands and feet. Scripture is His Word. And in prayer we have His ear. Nevertheless, these are the means He has appointed to continually call us to repentance and faith. Let me illustrate what I mean. First, by reminding you of the passage. When we think about Zacchaeus, when we think about the rich ruler, both heard the Word of Christ, but they did not respond in the same way. Was it because there was a deficiency in the means of grace? Was it because Christ's Word was not enough? No, may it never be. It was not because his word was not enough. It was because one man had faith, one man did not. Christ has said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. One man was not his sheep and he didn't hear his voice. He didn't recognize it. And so when Jesus called him, he went away sorrowing. One man was. And so he heard his voice and he responded in faith. Jesus gave a clear and unmistakable command to both men. To the one, it was different. Sell all that you have because he saw in that man's heart the grip of his riches was so overpowering. To the other, it was simply, come down here right now. I'm going to stay with you today. One man obeyed and gladly did all the other things. One man wouldn't part with even a penny. It wasn't a deficiency in Christ's word. His message was clear and unmistakable. But one was not his sheep, and so would not listen to his voice. And that's a warning to us. Now let me put this in two modern pictures as we think about the means of grace. And I've adapted these from things I've observed in my own life, and seeing the testimony of other Christians and their faithfulness to call Sinners to repentance, graciously working it through us. And so let us embrace this mission. 
when people come to us to help us, to challenge us, to restore us. Let us respond as people who are sheep of our good shepherd, who hear his voice in the word of God. And where we see it being necessary for others, let us reach out to them too, with not our words, with the words of Christ, with all gentleness and patience and love, but with perseverance as we seek to participate in this great work that the Son of Man came to accomplish and will perform as he seeks and saves all who are his own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would make us such a people, people who so love your word and your son, so treasure Christ that we count all things as loss. And if anything would take his place as the object of our ultimate affection, we pray, Lord, that you would not leave us alone, but seek us out and tear it from our hands, that we might on that last day when the Son of Man comes to fulfill all that he will perform when he comes again, that we might be found in him, faithful to the end. We know that this is not something we have the strength to accomplish, but we know that this is something that you will surely accomplish. So we trust you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.